0: The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au For those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Gareth. Uh, I'm one of the elder candidates here at North Lakes. And uh, today we are continuing our series going through the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is effectively a biography of Jesus, as told by this guy Mark. We have four of them in the Bible, all written by different people, all with a slightly different emphasis, a slightly different point that they are trying to make. as you could tell from the title of our series, um, one of the major points that Mark is trying to get and we 're trying to draw out is the kingship of this guy Jesus but Mark. The Gospel of Mark is this clever and insightful piece of ancient literature whose purpose it is to constantly violate the expectations of those who are hearing or listening to its text. Um, This kingdom won't look how you think. This king won't look how you think. An example of this was back a couple of weeks ago when we looked at Mark 11. Um, There was, Jesus had these conversations with the rich young ruler or with James and John. Each of them had these expectations about what it meant to enter the kingdom for the rich young ruler. It was like, what can I do? For James and John, they were like, what can we do to become uh, powerful in this kingdom, to have these great positions of glory and honour? But... A couple of weeks ago, we saw that Jesus ended up taking them through the fact that that actually isn't what the kingdom is about at all. It's this upside-down kingdom. Mark has been setting his readers up to understand that these things are not always as they appear. And as we transition towards our chapter today, Mark 13, I'd like to say, in my experience, many of us rely upon tomorrow. I know that I certainly do. I rely on the fact that I will have tomorrow to do the things that I have been putting off, the things that I just haven't gotten around to yet, or perhaps to being the man that I haven't gotten around to yet. The existence of tomorrow means that I can neglect the order of my priorities. It's not that uh, I either lose or add priorities, but I just put them in the order in which it feels most pressing in the moment. For example, um, I might... Uh, Neglect enjoying dinner with my wife because I've got an assignment to do. You know, I'll always have tomorrow to do that. I can avoid having like a morning quiet time in which I dedicate my day to the Lord in the scripture, in prayer, and in contemplation because I'll always have tomorrow to get up early and do that. At the same time as many of us kind of neglect the opportunities we have in the present, we have this fascination towards the future not the tomorrow that we believe that we will always have but the distant future we long to understand where we are going it's one of like the big four questions that we as humans have where did we come from why are we here how are we to act now that we are here and where are we going and this chapter here ends up be this ends up kind of addressing some of those questions or at least that's what we want it to do. This fascination with the future has led to all sorts of people looking to the Bible as a potential roadmap for coming events. This fascination to has led to our wonderful friend Nicholas Cage starring in some pretty terrible movies. Um, the Left Behind series has been so popular that the books which inspired this film sold over 65 million copies. In that series of books, 11 of them made it onto the New York Times bestseller list at the number one position. The response to these books, I believe, is telling. There is a group of people out there who believe that this stuff is really important and should get the lion's share of our focus. And there are people who, like myself, um, actually consider sort of struggle looking forward to that distant future and consider a lot of it, you know, sort of speculation and triviality. Come on, let's worry about that tomorrow. But I think perhaps there's a bit of a middle ground to strike. When we started looking at this series, we were trying to divide the chapters amongst ourselves, and Kylum gave me the option between two different chapters, Mark 13 or Mark 15. Um, There were weeks that he was going to be away for various reasons. Like this morning, he's off speaking at Enogra, um, our wonderful friends there. Mark 13 is one of the most contentious, confusing, and difficult passages of Scripture in the Bible. Karl was like, nah, you won't do it. You're a chicken. I was like, I'm not. He's like, ah, too. And so now today I'm doing Mark 13 um, because uh, I'm easy to goad into stuff. Um, there are a number of different ways to approach this text. A lot of them have godly, intelligent, and thoughtful people who hold to them. All of them believe that those who were hearing this being taught for the first time were hearing something about the future. Jesus was talking about the future more specifically about the end of the world but i'm not sure that that's what this text is primarily about i think it's about the end of a world but perhaps not the end of all days i don't know exactly what jimmy is going to do in his take on this text but i do know that our points are effectively going to be the same thing the things you should be taking away from the sermon will be the same one the temple will be destroyed two Jesus is coming back. And three, the point of this passage is not primarily on the future, but it's meant for us to reflect upon the way that we think and act in our present moment and live in faithfulness. So, let's quickly pray together. I know that I need it. Um, And then let's get stuck in. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to come here together, to open up your word and to hear your voice. I pray that as we look at these difficult texts, many of us might have preconceived notions or opinions coming into it, Lord. But I pray that we keep the main thing the main thing. Lord, may we focus on the fact that you are coming back. You will make this world bright. You will wipe every tear from our eyes. And you will rewrite all of the hurt in this world in yourself. And I pray that we may be charitable to those who hold different opinions to us. And I pray that you soften our hearts and sharpen our minds to receive what your Spirit is saying to us this morning. As I speak, may, be, may there be more of you and less of me. Amen. I'm aware that a number of you here might be particularly excited about us doing this chapter where we're looking at the signs of the times, the abomination of desolation and the coming of the Son of Man, because you have a particular interest in eschatology or the study of the end times or the last days. As I said before, I am, however, not convinced that this is the primary subject matter of most of this chapter. That, however, is not the only way of looking at this text. Some believe that this text is entirely about a series of events that happened in AD 70, 70 years after the birth of Christ. Others are convinced that this has nothing to do with those events and is purely about the end of this world as we know it and Jesus coming back. I am, however, going to articulate the view that is held by the majority of evangelical scholars, as far as I can tell. Um, that there are portions of this text which are about the events that happened in Jerusalem in AD seventy and there there are events that are about the coming end of this age. So, let's get stuck in, having a look at the first few verses. Mark has gotten to a spot in this story where Jesus has just left the temple. Remember the last couple of weeks, Jesus has been doing some teaching. He laid some smack down with a whip that he made himself. And then he fielded a bunch of questions from some religious leaders who were trying to trick him up. But as Kylum kept saying, Jesus is wicked smart. Um, As Jesus and the disciples were leaving, one of them was like, Jesus, that place is totally rad. And it was. The temple was one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world. It was made out of these glittering white stones and precious metals and was in the process of still being constructed by Herod. But even then, under construction, it was beautiful. You remember Herod, the guy back at the start of the story who was trying to collect that census? He was this guy who was trying to build this temple partly as a monument to himself. Herod's plan was to build the most spectacular building that could have been imagined in this part of the world. And it would have been inconceivable that this building, which felt like this certainty, this immovable object, this symbol of God's favour on earth, could be destroyed. But Jesus, hearing them mention this building, casually remarked on the fact that there will not be here left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus was, in that moment, predicting, prophesying, foretelling the destruction of that temple. And I'm not sure that in our context we can really appreciate how big of a deal this is. Not only architecturally, not only politically, but spiritually for the Jewish people. The temple was the place where heaven met earth, where the priests would enter into the sanctuary to be in the very presence of God. Without the temple, the people of God would have had no means of communicating with him or ministering to or being ministered to by him in the way that they had become accustomed. It was symbolic of God's favour. The destruction of this building would have been the equivalent of the end of the Jewish world as they knew it. Jesus then plunges into and what we're going to be walking through something called the Olivet Discourse, if you've heard those words before. A discourse just means uh, spoken communication. All of it is just a fancy way of saying that he said it on the Mount of Olives. Um, So what we're going to be doing is going through from verse 4 onwards. The disciples then understandably pull Jesus up and ask the obvious question. Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Something that we tend to do is we read the Bible in our 21st century context, and sometimes because of that, we aren't as careful as reading the text as we could be. We often separate it from its moment in history, and we're in danger of reading the Bible in such a way that it makes it probably less true rather than more true when we try to apply everything to ourselves in our moment. The first rule when it comes to reading a text like this is that we need to try to understand how it would have been received by the original listeners and what the original author or speaker intended to say. And I believe that when Jesus was asked about these things, he was first and foremost responding to the actual destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which is what he was just asked about. Although it must be noted that in a parallel passage, so the Gospels effectively all tell the same story with slightly different points. And in Matthew, there's a second part to their question. What will be the sign of the destruction of the temple and what will be the sign of your coming and the close of the age? That's how we kind of know that there were two questions in the minds of the disciples and two questions really that Jesus was addressing in this moment because his answer is very similar. The difficult part for us is figuring out what chunks are addressing the destruction of the temple and what stuff is addressing the close of the age. This temple was destroyed in dramatic fashion in a war which culminated with a siege of Jerusalem. This guy, Titus, who would later be crowned emperor, attacked Jerusalem in response to a civil war that raged from AD 66 to AD 70. There wasn't much left of that temple which Titus finished Uh, After he finished sacking Jerusalem, the temple had, as we established back in Mark 12, become a place where moneylenders set up and turned it into this default bank. And there were actually these large stores of gold and other precious metals in the temple itself. And when he was sacking Jerusalem, Titus ended up throwing all this fire and stuff into the temple. The gold melted and it went in between the flagstones, like in between the pavers on the ground. And part of uh, Titus' sacking of that temple was he pulled the stones up and out so that he would be able to collect the gold that had melted in between the cracks. Um, Josephus, this Jewish historian of the time, reported that Caesar ordered the whole city and the temple to be razed to the ground. All the rest of the wall encompassing the city was so completely leveled to the ground as to leave future visitors to the spot, no grounds for thinking that it had ever been established. Josephus also said no other city endured such miseries. As we start looking into some helpful chunks as we go through the text, what we have in verses 5 through verses 23, which we will get to. We're going through a lot of text today. I'm sorry, we'll be going really quick. Um, There are two general things. First, general instructions and warnings from verse 5 through 13. These are patterns that we can see even now, the products of living in a fallen world. The stuff that Jesus says, like the earthquakes and the political unrest, are not signs. He explicitly says that they are non-signs. They are just indications that we live in a fallen world and you are a follower of Jesus. And then we go from verse 14 through verse 23. Jesus mentions some more specific signs about when the temple would be destroyed and gives them clear instructions on how to weather the coming storm. He was trying to prepare them for the immediate future. So as we walk through, that's kind of I'm trying to give you a little bit of a roadmap as to where we're going. And as we see the first answer that Jesus gives in verse 5, And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Did you notice that rather than answering directly their question about the destruction of the temple, he unflinchingly draws their minds back to the present, the here and now, their focus upon the truth. See that no one leads you astray. In the New Testament church, false teaching spread quickly. The Apostle Paul actually spent a decent chunk of his time writing to a church in Thessalonica in 2 Thessalonians, telling them to stop expecting Jesus to come back in such a way that they actually had stopped working, getting married, living their lives, or being a blessing to their communities. They were just waiting for him to come back any moment. They just stopped living effectively. They made the opposite error to many of us, myself included. They became so fixated upon Jesus' return that they ceased to be a blessing to the world. I often, however, become so fixated on the here and now that I forget that Christ is coming back. Jesus, however, begins to detail what the trials they should expect in the near future. From verse 5 and 6, he warns them about false teachers. These were plentiful in the days following Jesus. He then goes on to say that they would hear about national and environmental disasters from verse 7 and 8, and that there would be these hard times in the world around them. But that those were just the beginnings of birth pains. They were the signs of something coming, not the thing being there itself. They were contractions, not the baby. You don't want to get those confused. Um, Jesus then moves on from verses 9 through 13 to being talking, talking more specifically about some sufferings that his followers would experience. This description of betrayals, mockery, rejection by family and friends, actually a pretty good description, almost like a table of contents of what the disciples suffered in the book of Acts. That book of Acts was this book written by this guy who wrote the book of Luke. Uh, which was an account of the church in the years following the death and resurrection of Jesus. We also see in there um, that in verse 10, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Some people fixate upon this as this missionary verse, that Jesus won't come back until it's gone all the way over the world. Um, I'm unconvinced, however, that that's really the the authorial intent of that verse. Um, it was very common to be thinking of all nations in that time to just be what's outside of their immediate people group. Um, they thought that, uh, that all nations had been fulfilled by the end of Acts as it had gone from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Um, we see that style of um, poetic exaggeration all the way through the New Testament. I would then like to draw your attention, however, away from some of this minutiae, because I don't really think it's the point of the passage. We see two glorious promises. The first we see in verse 11, that for those who are under trial who are being persecuted because they are Christians, the Holy Spirit will be with them and give them wisdom on how to best respond. And then in verses 12 and 13, we see... That even when we are betrayed by our family, our brothers, our parents, our children, that Jesus will be with us and the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus is telling the disciples that there are hard times coming and that they should prepare themselves for the task ahead. But even though they need to do some work, they will ultimately not be forsaken. They will not be left alone. There is so much to potentially unpack in that last section, but for the sake of time, we'll move on to the next portion, where I believe that Jesus shifts from giving general warnings about the state of the world after he leaves to specific signs regarding the destruction of the temple. So we'll go to the next chunk of verses at verse 14. "'But when you see the abomination of desolation, standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains.'" Hey you, when you see the Romans coming, with the intent to burn down the city, flee. Flee quickly to the mountains. It's one of those verses which adds, I believe, weight to the fact that it's more about AD 70 at this portion of the text. For us, the reader, it's really difficult to flee Judea when we're not there. Um, it's, um, for those who were readers at the time, they were living in Judea. And for many of them who survived this Roman purge, they actually fled to the mountains. That, that this particular bit makes it difficult to specifically interpret about um, the end of the age. But what is it that they're fleeing from? That's the question that we're begging. The Abomination of Desolation. What's that other than the coolest title ever? Um, It's actually a title from uh, the Old Testament, the prophet Daniel, which most scholars believe was looking forward to this event that happened in the future of Daniel, but in the past of when they're reading, in in 168 BC, before the birth of Christ. When this Syrian general, Antiochus Epiphanes, another rad name, um, built an altar in the temple, sacrificed a pig, um, which was uh, like in the temple. Uh, Some accounts say that he did it nude. Um, And and that's horrific, Um, you know, because it was this unclean animal in the Jewish sacrificial system. But also, poor pig. Um, there was this outrageous and cataclysmic event which happened in the past when Jerusalem was sacked, their holy place was defiled. And I think that Mark was using this language to say, hey, something similarly horrific is going to happen again. He was saying, so it's like, hey, this thing that you remember, this is kind of coming back. But enough on that. How are we to respond, though? Jesus gives some really clear instructions in 15 to 18 to those who were listening to this passage talking about that abomination. Don't gather your stuff. Don't go back. Those days will be hard, hard for those who are pregnant. Frankly, with a heavily pregnant wife, all days are hard for those who are pregnant. Um, and I hope that it's not in winter. That's, that's what he's saying. He's saying, don't go back. Don't grab your cloak. Don't worry about anything else. If you see the Romans coming, just go. Then it goes on to describe how bad this tribulation, this suffering, this crazy event was going to be. There will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until and will never be. And if the Lord had not cut short those days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the day. This particular bit Um, actually does make it a bit more difficult to interpret as it being specifically about what occurred in AD 70. Um, And some people would say, as as I'm saying this whole time, there's lots of difference of opinion. Um, However, it is considered by the majority of evangelical scholars to be very reasonably a form of this prophetic exaggeration, this poetic language of describing this thing um, being terrible and there never being anything else as imaginably terrible as this. Because it actually really was. In AD 70, this short, intense period, there was was unimaginable suffering in Jerusalem. There was cannibalism, there was disease, there was death for this very short period of time. It makes sense to me that the general who read the Romans in the destruction of the temple, Emperor Titus, to be that abomination of desolation... um, who famously refused actually to be awarded the normal medals and the glory and the honour of conquering this city and instead declared himself to be an embodiment of God's judgement against Israel. Some disagree um, and think that that text is talking about the Antichrist. I won't be going down that path today, um, but I do find it to be more compelling that it's related to this event. As we spin further forward into Mark 13, we are looking at then the coming of the Son of Man. The Son of Man was Jesus' favourite messianic nickname for himself, or the favourite nickname to indicate that he was the promised Messiah, the Son of God, the one who would save and redeem the world. And we see what is likely a clear gear change from them talking about these events in AD 70 to the coming judgment, the last days. And I'd like to pause very briefly here. Many of us have this strange relationship, I think, with God's judgment. It can sometimes cause a certain distaste in our mouths. The fact that God will have this day of reckoning, of punishment. But I believe that there is actually something deep within us that longs for that. We look not only to the world around us, the inequality, the sickness and the death, but also the harms that ourselves and loved ones suffer and we long for those things to be made right. This returning king won't sit idly by, excusing the heartache and the atrocities that people have suffered. And when the New Testament uses like the vernacular or the language of those days or that day, very commonly, that's that New Testament writer saying, the day of judgment, that coming end day. So when you read those verses through here, which I'd recommend you do in your own time, that you see this majesty of his return. And it seems to clarify that he's speaking about something other than the 80-70 event. But as we shift forward onto the fig tree, I know we're having to go really quickly through all of this. This passage here looks at how something can be learnt from how the fig tree responds to the change of season, to summer coming. Those who were hearing what he's saying should be on high alert for the signs that were detailed regarding the abomination of desolation. This is again which, another passage which adds weight to it being about that 80-70 destruction of the temple. Verse 30 says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. A generation in this period was normally considered around about 40 years. And if the bulk of this passage was about the destruction of the temple in AD 70, then it appears to be no accident that it occurred almost exactly 40 years after these words were uttered. And it also makes sense that Jesus shifts again to talking about these things. These things will not occur. Um, That's that same language that he was referring back to in the question itself, referring to the destruction of the temple. But all of this today, which we've kind of quickly spun through, um, is about getting to this final section. No one knows the day or the hour. But concerning that day or that hour, notice the return to that day, that kind of language, that kind of apocalyptic, end of days kind of language, indicating Jesus' return. No one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father, be on guard, keep awake for you do not know when the time will come. I could spend some time here going over the fact that jesus doesn 't know the things that the Father does has been a stumbling block for theologians for thousands of years, but I really don 't think that that 's the point of the passage, and we 're running low of, a little low on time. but the point that I would like to actually emphasize here is that I think that Jesus' ignorance of that coming end uh, has a higher view of God rather than a lower view. He really became human. Jesus really grew in knowledge. He set aside aspects of his godness to enter into our creation, to understand his creation, to really understand our infirmities and our trials. He put aside certain things, for example, God's omnipresence—the fact that God is everywhere, all at once. Um, as a quick aside, we tend to have—we tend to pray, "Hey God, in this moment, please show up," um, which is a little redundant because He's already there. Perhaps our better prayer should be, "Hey God, can you help me show up? I'm probably the one with the less consistent track record." Um, but here, what He's given up is His omniscience—the um, fact that. I think that if Jesus didn't know, um, and as Kylum said, Jesus is wicked smart, Um, if he's not trying to make a guess at the exact date or time when he'll be returning, I don't think that the point of this passage is for us to examine what he said and try to figure out the thing that even Jesus didn't know. But as a preacher, I ultimately want to make the point of the text the point of my sermon. And I would like to quickly touch on this parable as we start to close, which provides a thoughtful conclusion, I believe, to this chapter. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to you all, stay awake. This is the crux of this whole chapter. Jesus is speaking to sleepy Christians. As I said, I'm the guy who relies on tomorrow. I'm reliant on the fact that tomorrow will be my next opportunity for faithfulness so I can forego the one today. It's strange, it's a strange thing, the patience of God. Um, We sung and we prayed about it just before the fact that uh, God bears with us. He is slow to anger. He waits gently and kindly and with humility, with open arms, slowly drawing us into his embrace, ready to meet the gnawing hunger in our soul with his all satisfying presence. But at the same time, we then have passages like this. Warnings, which I hope would wake Christians up to the moment in which we stand. We don't know when Jesus will come. Jesus didn't know. It's right there in the text. And in this parable, it describes a master who may return home and find the doorkeeper asleep at any time. The four moments, actually, that were mentioned in that text, um, in verse 35... In the evening or at midnight when the rooster crows or in the morning. Those were the, the names of the four shifts that a Roman guard would take. And they'd normally have four different people taking each one of those shifts. So this is saying that this doorkeeper is going to be there the whole night. And back uh, in, you know, AD 30, when this was written, um, travelling at night was a risky prospect. They didn't even have their iPhone to light the way. They'd trip over stuff. It would be ridiculous. So people tended to not travel all that much at night. But this is Jesus saying, no matter how unlikely it seems, stay awake, stay on guard. You don't want to be sleeping when your master returns. He wants us, Jesus is saying, to live our lives present. Loving our neighbors, putting down roots, seeking the good of the culture and the communities in which we live, while keeping our eyes fixed upon eternity, knowing that the good king is returning to claim his people. As the band comes up and as we close, I'd like to ask just a few questions. What are you waiting for? What priorities are you perhaps putting above your faithfulness? What do you think will always be there tomorrow in the same way that the disciples assumed that the temple would be? What things do you see as certainties which will one day pass away? As we, here at LCC, we take communion every week. And I would like for you to be reflecting upon this question. For those of you who aren't Christians or who have perhaps walked away from Jesus. I'm sorry that this has been such a strange, confusing sermon. Um, But I want you to hear this. Time is short. Jesus is coming back. We don't know when. But we would love for you to join with us and put your trust in this good King. For those of you who are Christians, as you take the communion which you may have already collected from the sides... Take some time to do four different things. One, reflect upon your life. Two, rejoice in the way that God has blessed you and held you close to him and where he has kept you awake by his spirit, where his spirit perhaps has ministered to you in those times of trial. And rejoice that he will be near to you. Repent for being either too focused upon the future and trying to figure out the little minutiae of this passage, or perhaps like myself, repenting for the fact that I neglect the future for the here and now. I'm always trusting in tomorrow. And then finally, take that moment to accept the grace, that love and renew your relationship and faithfulness to him. Reflect Rejoice, repent and renew. Brothers and sisters, time is short. And we know that tomorrow won't always come. Let's pray. Father, when we come to difficult, confusing passages like this, it can be a potential source for division among your children. I pray that for us uh, who love the Bible, who love you, who long for your return, that we don't let this become a stumbling block for our for community. But we try to keep the main thing the main thing. That you will be with us that you will hold us fast, that your Spirit won't abandon us, that you're coming back and you will make this world new. We pray all of these things in your Son's precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church located in North Lakes. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.